In his classic novel, The Portrait of a Lady, Henry James introduces us to a radiant young woman by the name of Isabel Archer. I remember meeting her for the first time in a college course, and I've never been able to forget her, nor the lessons she learns in life. Isabel is the 1880s version of a Facebook millionaire, or billionaire, I suppose. She's a young woman who has suddenly come into colossal wealth. And the reception of this amazing, unexpected capacity sends Isabel on a journey to try and discern what it really means to be an aristocrat. Isabel journeys, as was the custom for the affluent in that particular period of American history, she journeys off to Europe, to the great capitals and the great uh, culture of Europe to discern what it means to live the life of nobility. And as she moves her way through the great estates and the fabulous salons of England and Italy, Isabel is presented with various images of this aristocratic life. She meets individuals who use their fortunes to heap privilege upon themselves and who are then insulated from the the pains and the struggles and the needs of other people. Isabel encounters those who actually use their position and power to suppress other people, to judge and to punish and to criticize and condemn and to hold with contempt ordinary people. And she wonders, is this what it means to be a noble? To vaunt and to flaunt your value above the value of others. But then Isabel enters the company of an older woman named Madame Merle. Madame Merle is is nothing like most of the others that she's meeting in this environment she's walked into. Somehow, Madame Merle's affluence has not made her haughty and hard, but humble and humorous and enormously generous towards others. Madame Merle, James writes, appeared to have in her experience a touchstone for everything, Isabel observes, even when attacked or misunderstood or wronged by other people, and she was all of those things, somewhere in the capacious pocket of her genial memory. Oh, we've lost the charm of the English language. Somewhere in the capacious pocket of her genial memory, she would find the key to the other person's value. And slowly, this new and better picture of nobility begins to form in Isabel Archer's mind. That's the great thing, Isabel solemnly pondered. That's The supreme good fortune, she realized, it is to be in a better position for appreciating people than they are for appreciating you. And she added that such, when one considered it, was the essence of the aristocratic situation. And in this light, she thought, if in none other, one should aim at the aristocratic situation. 
As I was reading this week through the menu of passages from the common lectionary, it struck me that what tied them all together was this calling from God to this kind of noble sensibility. I think we would have to agree that God, by definition, is in the supreme aristocratic situation. He is situated in the supreme place of aristocracy. I think how many of you would agree to that reality? God sits on the ultimate throne of the consummate kingdom. God is the founder and the owner of all of the stock of the only eternal corporation. God is the inventor and has the rights to absolutely everything. God is worthy of all power and honor and glory, the scriptures say. He is a being of such splendid and staggering value that he alone is the proper focus of everyone's devotion. And yet, remarkably, and surprisingly, shockingly, amazingly, God's focus is on the value of others. Wow. His focus is on the value of others. And like Madame Merle, in a sense, even where people have no appreciation for him, God never stops appreciating them. He never ceases in his concern for them. He never fails in his outreaching love for them. Even when his enemies torture and taunt and nail him to a cross, God never stops loving them despite their wicked ignorance, their inability to appreciate his inestimable value. Christ cries out, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. He just appreciates that they're still valuable even though they do not know what they do. And God asks us, God calls us, commands us to become like him in this particular way. Okay? This is the, this is the big idea. This is the thing that you showed up for today. He's calling you to become like him in this particular way, even though it runs against the common focus of our fallen nature, even though it runs against the drive toward selfish gain that is the, the rage of the world, nonetheless, God calls us to strive for his higher standard above the common order of things. He says, be holy, which literally means be set apart from the common to the aristocratic, in a sense, Be holy as I am holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He declares that in Leviticus 19. And then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, the same thing. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you read on in both of those chapters, I encourage you to do it. I hope you did it last week. Leviticus 19, Matthew chapter 5. You read on, you see that each of those passages is actually urging us to appreciate, to focus on the value of others. 
maybe more than we do. In Leviticus 19, the charge God gives us is to care appropriately for others. For example, he says, and I quote, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings, the leftovers of your harvest. Don't take them inside for yourself. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Intentionally leave stuff behind. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. Why? Because I... The generous God and the Lord. In other words, I know that you could keep everything that you own, that you've worked for. I get it that you could rationally and legally take and consume and store all of what you believe is yours to keep. But I'm saying, rise above the common standard. Aim for the aristocratic situation. Show your appreciation for the values of others by being generous like me. And then he goes on in the following verses to describe a whole list of other ways that we can demonstrate the value of other people. Don't steal from, lie to, slander, Or defraud anybody. Pay workers on time. Don't keep them waiting. Show respect and compassion for people with physical disabilities. Refuse to play favorites with entire classes of people, whether they're poor people or rich people. Do not play favorites with classes. Don't harbor secret resentments. Do not bear grudges or seek revenge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And in all these ways, show your appreciation for the value of other human beings. For I am the Lord. Are you getting this so far? It's not really that complicated. God is calling you and me to exercise an uncommon, gracious nobility toward others. We're to be graciously noble in our treatment of others. When people listen to us talking in the hallway, when they read our posts on Facebook, when they get our Twitter feeds, when they watch the way we conduct business or treat people who are waiting on us, we should remind them much more of Kate Middleton or Nelson Mandela than some of the other figures to which our culture is drawing all the attention. Are you and I experienced as people with an uncommon awareness of the value of each and every person we meet? Are they surpri- are, you find people sometimes surprised by the extent to which you're locked in on them. You are interested in them. You are concerned for them. You see the value in them. Are we even aiming for that situation or have we given up? Have we just settled into being ordinary kinds of people? 
I want to observe that there's one environment where it is harder than any other to exercise the kind of spiritual nobility that God wants to see in us, those of us who are his disciples. But it is also this same environment that spiritual aristocrats are most powerfully formed and refined. I'm talking about those times when we are confronted with people who not only may not seem to have tons of value in themselves from a natural point of view, but who do not appreciate our value. Right? They do not take seriously our value. They may even degrade our value. We have met these people. All of us have met these people, have we not? There's the person who wishes you ill or who devotes themselves to hurting you, to undermining, degrading, speaking ill of you. There's the individual who constantly criticizes you or criticized you, who apparently is unable to see anything good in you or what you have been contributing. There's the person for whom you wore yourself out without so much as a thank you. They took all the credit as if this was sort of naturally theirs by right to have all that you'd actually done for them, contributed for them. There's the individual who demanded way too much of you or who betrayed you. There are these enemies in your life. There are these people who see no value in you. And we know what the common response is to people like that. Push back at them. Give them a dose of their own medicine. Cut them off. Walk away from them. And there are times when any of those responses can actually be the right thing to do. Let me just underline that so we don't miss it. There are times when that is exactly the thing that, that should be done. Never forget, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple because they were doing wrong, and he was determined to make it clear this was wrong, and he was going to stop this thing from happening. He was going to get their attention. Jesus warned his disciples on another occasion not to keep casting their swine, their pearls before swine, not to take that which was precious and valuable and continue to give it to somebody who has no clue what to do with it and just tromps on it and muddies it. Jesus says there are times when you need to just shake the dust off your shoes and move on from people whose hearts are just so hard who will not repent of their wrongs. But in our lesson from Matthew's gospel today, Jesus is also plainly calling us to hold all of those viable options alongside of and in creative tension in discerning relationship with another possible way of responding to those who do not take seriously our value. You have heard that it was said, says Jesus, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, Roman soldiers had a legal right to do that in that day. They could stop anybody on the street, give them their backpack and say, can you carry this for, you carry this for me? But they could only do it for one mile. Uh, Jesus says, if somebody asks you to do that, go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. And I'm not sure there whether he's saying that you may show yourself, that you may reveal your identity as children of the King, or that you may begin to live into that identity by doing these things like he does. For he, Jesus says, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This seems so dangerous, doesn't it? (laughs) Wow. This way of life seems reckless. It seems stupid. It seems even foolish to do these sorts of things. And God would agree with that. It does. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools. You should do some of the foolish things I'm telling you to do so that you may become wise. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, he says elsewhere. There are times... This is the key idea here. When God calls us to love like a fool, there are circumstances when he gives us obviously permission to do those other things. And you may be in that position where you need to do one of those other things with somebody, but there are these times when he calls us to love like a fool, to love the way he loves the way Jesus actually demonstrated, because this Matthew 5 passage that I've just read, this description of what it looks like to love, Jesus does every single one of those things. Go back and read the text again, and you'll see. It's himself he's describing. This is the way he lives. This is the way he did handle himself with people so often. The question has to be asked, why? Why does God do this? Why doesn't he always retaliate at evil? Why does he let bad people sometimes keep on doing bad things? Why does he continue to water the fields of people who don't acknowledge the source of the blessing or don't use the blessing for the good purposes for which they were given? And the answer is because God is the ultimate aristocrat. And the essence of the aristocratic situation is being in a better position for appreciating others than they are for appreciating you. 
God is in that situation. God has the ultimate vantage point. He, has, he is situated in such a way that he can appreciate not only the great value of people, but also the great void in people. God is able to see with a clarity that none of us has the deep wounds, the restless anxieties, the awful fears, the ravaging losses, in short, the great brokenness that lies beneath so much of the cupidity and stupidity and outright bad acting of people in this world. God sees what motivates all of it. And God knows that if you want to change the behavior of a dog that bites, the answer is not always to give it another kick or to rush too quickly to put it down. Sometimes the better cure is to show that dog a daring, persevering, even foolishly noble kind of kindness. In one of his recent books, Franciscan priest Richard Rohr helps us understand a little better the wisdom behind God's way. God always entices us through love, he writes. Most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we changed. In fact, God loves you so that you can change. What empowers change, writes Rohr, what makes you actually desirous of change is the experience of love and acceptance itself. This is the engine of change. Most of our common religion, he writes, has given us an inferior message. In fact, I would tell you that this other religion is so common. We've heard so much of it all of our lives. We don't know it isn't Christianity. We don't know it's not what the Bible actually teaches or what Jesus came to show us. Most of our common religion has given us this inferior message that God loves you when you change. But that's moralism and nothing more. It's not the gospel. It puts it all back on you, which is the opposite of being saved. If you live with this approach, you will discover you are never holy enough, never pure enough, never refined enough, never loving enough, whereas, writes Rohr, When you fall into God's mercy, when you fall into God's great generosity, when you meet somebody who does not render evil for evil to you, though they have every right to, it's totally natural to, you deserve it. When you meet somebody who extends to you an amazing kind of love, you find seemingly from nowhere the capacity to change. Our time is nearly up, so let me summarize if I can and just close. If we had God's perfect 
aristocratic perspective on the value of people, we would delight. We would be happy to do right by them, to do good for them in all of the ways Leviticus 19 describes. If we could see the inestimable value of people created just a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor, the psalmist says in Psalm 8, if we could see, as God sees, the value of people, we would delight in doing good to him in all the ways that his word calls for. And, secondly, if we had God's perfect, aristocratic perspective on the void within people, we would more frequently respond to them in the way that Matthew 5 describes with a love that is at least as foolish as God's. I know a man who lives in Paris, writes Jean Vanier. His wife has Alzheimer's. He was an important businessman. His life was filled with busyness. But he said that when he fell, his wife fell sick, I just couldn't put her into an institution. So I kept her. I fed her. I bathed her. I became more human. I got a letter from him recently, writes Vanier. He said that in the middle of the night, his wife woke him up. She came out of the fog for just a moment, and she said, Darling, I just want to say thank you for all you've been doing for me. And then she fell back into the fog. And I wept. And I wept. Vanier concludes, sometimes Christ calls us to love people who cannot love us in return. They live in the fog of mental illness, of disabilities, of poverty, of spiritual blindness. But just as Jesus has loved us in the midst of our spiritual confusion, so we are called to continue to love others as they walk through the fog. So here's the invitation. Until the day when the fog finally clears for us all. Until the day when we're all able to see everyone and everything clearly. Aim to get yourself closer to the aristocratic situation. Pray for the capacity to to gain a better spiritual position, vantage point for appreciating the value and the void in other people than they have for appreciating you and even if it means encountering an enemy who could bite you or has bitten you. Ask God to give you a vision and a heart for people that is just a bit more like his. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Amen.